This is a quick disclaimer. Although the wise investor is trying to educate people on personal finance, what we talk about on the show is not actually financial advice for your personal and unique situation. Before trying to do anything with your money, always consult a professional. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School, presented by the Wise Investor Team. Making Canadians more financially literate, one post at a time. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 32 of What They Did Not Teach You in School. Episode 32, believe it or not. Today, we have a special guest on the show, Swish Goswami. At the ripe age of 23, Swish has a long line of experience and accolades. As CEO of TrueFan, Toronto-based tech startup, he's innovating the way brands collect data and interact with their followers at scale, working with companies such as Netflix, Samsung, the NBA, NFL, to name a few. On top of being an entrepreneur and leader in the digital tech space in Canada, Swish was a debater representing Canada at the World School Championships and has a passion for public speaking, speaking at multiple conferences, including TEDx, Haste and Hustle. I saw you at that Haste and Hustle event. I was in the crowd. The recipient of many honors and awards, Swish has received the United Nations Outstanding Youth Leadership Award and Startup Canada's Young Entrepreneur Award, as well as named as one of the Plan Canada's Top 20 Under 20. In a continuously more digital world, where we speak more to each other behind a screen than in person, and social platforms are continuously taking up more and more of our attention and lives. We're interviewing Swish today to discuss his journey in digital technology and storytelling, as well as to get insight in the way this technology is affecting our mental health and lifestyle. Swish, brother, nice to have you on. Lovely to be on. I couldn't have said that bio better. <laughs> Honestly, I, I stole it a lot. I stole it a lot off of what I found online. So totally. I love I love that you did your research though, and it's amazing to be here and to chat with you, Anthony. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So uh, where are you right now in Toronto? I am in Toronto. I'm in my apartment in Toronto. I got a little basketball net behind me, and uh, we were debating between having a dining table or having a pop up arcade basketball machine, and. You know, <laughs> I, love great, I love that. I love that. We can tell which one won one. that argument. Yeah, no. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was pretty unanimous. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the episode today. It's a, a complete honor to have you on. Before we dive into the questions, a quick word from our sponsor. Uh, King Street Media is a digital marketing agency out of Toronto. They do all the post production and posting for our podcast. What they did not teach you in school. Shout out to them. They've been partners with ours since day one. If you have any questions about how to build your company online, market it, increase your revenue, that's King Street Media or kingstreetmedia.ca. Thank you. Moving along. All right. So Swish, tell us about your story, man. You're so young. Like, How does somebody at your age become an entrepreneur or want to get into entrepreneurship instead of going into you know the big corporate world nine to five kind of gig? Totally. I, it's, a, it's a whirlwind journey. I mean, I grew up um, obviously debating, like you mentioned, in the bio. When I was in grade seven, I started debating. In grade 10, I joined the national team and brought me pretty much everywhere in the world to debate, to you know, go and meet uh, incredibly bright young people that were really interested in world issues and wanting to talk about it. Um, and it got me very interested in politics and it got me very interested in law. So when I was going to the University of Toronto, I had this path built out in my mind that I was going to be a lawyer. And it doesn't help that I have a, I have a, a brother who's four and a half years older. You know, when I joined debate, for example, in grade seven, he had won the World Schools Debating Championship in grade 12. Um, I went to the University of Toronto. He had graduated from law school, top of his class at U of T Law. So I've had a brother pretty much that had just done something a step ahead of me always. And that's been great. You know, there's always friendly competition. We love each other, but it's always great to kind of see the path built out for you as well. That it is possible to do all of this because my brother, the person that slept in the bedroom right beside me, has been able to do it too. Um, And so I went to the University of Toronto. I debated at U of T. But I also started to get really interested in entrepreneurship because I had stints of it growing up. Like I did junior achievement when I was 16 years old and built a company for six months. I did fairly well. I started a nonprofit in high school. And honestly, the nonprofit I built in high school was very much to support my resume, right? I wanted to apply to great universities. I wanted to show that I was out there in the community trying to do things. So I never saw that those experiences were going to be like career defining experiences, like things that I was going to make my full time career. 
But in first and second year of university, a number of different things happened. Um, number one is I became interested in entrepreneurship um, through some of my friends that had built businesses. So one of my friends, Saad Siddiqui, he's based in Toronto. He's built an incredible company called Bonsai. He actually dropped out of school after my first year. So I visited him in his office. I remember after I, I was interning in, in Washington, D.C. after my first year. But when I came back before school started again, for second year, I went to his office and I saw him working with a staff of like 10, 12 people working on this idea that, in my opinion, was crazy. But to him, it sounded so reasonable and so amazing. And it was pretty inspiring to just see someone like my age do something like that. Yeah. And then the second thing was when I was in second year, I tried building a few projects, most of which failed. Like I tried creating a company called Foodshare, um, where you know students essentially could share leftover and excess food with one another. So like Love if that. I didn't have half a pizza, at least I don't throw it in the garbage, but it goes somewhere to someone who wants it. Um, but I didn't realize that there's regulation issues around that, that idea. You can actually monetize donated food because of the Food Donation Act of 1994, which- Interesting, okay. That, right? Yeah, like <laughs> everyone <laughs> thinks about the Food Donation Act of 1994 when they wake up. <laughs> um, so stuff like that popped up, but I was always kind of very interested in this because I realized that compared to school, I was spending so much more time focused on these side projects. And I think it caught the radar of one basketball player. He was playing for the Brooklyn Nets. He's named Trevor Booker. And he reached out to me and said that he'd love to meet me. So he came down, he met me in Toronto before he played the Raptors. And he told me he's starting this VC in New York and he wants me to work for him. So that's exactly what I did after my second year. Um, I went and worked for him at this VC for three months. It was a great experience living in New York, really under his mentorship and guidance. And I fell in love with the city and became roommates with a guy named Elliot. He had created this big Instagram called uh, Instagram account called Dunk. I decided yeah, to join sure. him as a co-founder and you know the rest is kind of history in the sense of how I went from dunk to true fan and building that all out. So I wouldn't say any of this was planned. It was really just like going with the flow when opportunities came my way. Do you believe that uh, entrepreneurs are born or raised? I, I, I've, I've been asking this question around a little bit, right? And some people have, they've been entrepreneurs since they were 12, you know, like the Gary V story, like mm -hmm. going door to door. Some people, they develop over time. like. What do you think? Yeah. It's like, it's very similar. I think it's analogous to like, I'm a big passionate Formula One fan. So, you know, like it's very similar to like racing drivers, you know, like there's certain things that you can nurture um, and you can get into Formula Three, maybe even Formula Two. But if you want to be in Formula One, there's God-given talents, right? They're just God-given talents that you're given mm -hmm. um, around, for example, for Formula One, it's depth perception. Um, for, 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 for entrepreneurship, in my opinion, it's risk tolerance. I, I generally do think you're, maybe you're nurtured with it a little bit, but I think you're born with it too. Like, I think there are just some bad eggs that are born and, you know, they, they're the ones that make trouble in school. They're the ones that, you know, they get rules and they, they don't want to listen to it either from their parents or from their teachers and they become rebels and they channel their energy into an idea that potentially could disrupt the world. That's what I, I genuinely do believe. Um, but it isn't to say that obviously, you know, to be the best entrepreneur, you can't have nurtured it, right? Like there's a number of examples of people that started off as bankers and lawyers and then thought of a great idea, started it, and then became a billionaire, became a millionaire. So it's possible. And I think that's what is really cool about people who are successful and make money is all of them don't have God-given talent. And and that's amazing. because it's I love that. I love that. We can all make it to a certain degree. Especially the risk tolerance part too, because that is a big difference that you see. And like most people that drop out of trying their own business or whatever, who never start, yep. it's that either initial push or when times get tough, kind of yep. like battling through that. Yeah. Uh, is there something that like you did growing up that pushed you to be a little bit more risk tolerant than most? I am having a very competitive older brother helped. Right. Like it just I always wanted to one up him in everything I did. And it didn't matter like what it took to win, whether we were playing, you know, mini hockey in our living room or cricket on the cricket field or volleyball or basketball or debate. I, I always wanted to beat him. So I think I started to become very persistent. Right. Like grade seven. OK. Didn't do very well in debate. Grade eight. Didn't do very well in debate. Grade nine really started to pick things up. Didn't quit. Kept going. Kept practicing every weekend picked out a topic, practiced in front of the mirror, practiced in front of my mom, get feedback. And then grade 10, tried for the national team, somehow make it really like not even on the main starting squad for people debating, but continuously again, growing, right? So that, that level of persistence, I think, you know, you need to have it if you're an entrepreneur, especially during times like this, you need to be resilient. You need to not, you know, have that kind of 
quitter mindset. And that's something I genuinely do think I got from my brother just by being ultra competitive with him growing up. Nice. I like that. Um, Okay. So when I was in university, all right, Mm -hmm. when I first got into university in 2009, Facebook, like I just adopted Facebook. I was like, okay, I'll get a Facebook account. Okay. And then, so entrepreneurship, as we know today, and like venture capital and like incubators in Toronto were barely even a thing back then. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So you kind of went into university, perfect timing in that regard. Like Instagram was probably out. Like I didn't, Instagram didn't come out till actually I was done university. Yeah, no, I mean, I I grew up with these platforms, right? Like I remember getting Facebook when I was 13. So 10 years ago, I guess, um, 2010. 13. Yeah. yeah, I remember, (laughs) I remember Instagram coming out maybe like when I was in grade 10 and 11, I didn't actually, I didn't, I hated Instagram because all the girls in my class had it. They were just posting really dumb photos. So I was just like, this is a dumb show. Why would I use Instagram? I love it. (laughs) And then I think I got into Instagram in my first year of university and started posting and oh, my early Instagram posts, which I still keep up, um, are just like random shit. It's like, like literally I'm going for a walk and I'm just like water. Um, and it's random stuff. (laughs) But I, again, I was like dabbling with these platforms. I was trying to learn it. I remember being on Musical.ly when I was in first year of university, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. now it's TikTok and it's blown up and it's become this big thing. But I have old Musical.ly posts from like 2016 that I shared, which I'm never going to tell anyone the username for that account. But <laughs> oh my God, they are so cringy. But again, I was just trying various things out. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to come back in a little bit later on about uh, how you've been, because you're a big proponent on personal branding and you have a big following on LinkedIn and Instagram. I'll come back to that later. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about TrueFan, the company you're working on right now? How did that start? What gave you that idea? Mm -hmm. Yep. So I was working on Dunk with Elliot. This is kind of where the story kind of left off. Dunk was this media network of a bunch of really big Instagram accounts, including the biggest one was at Dunk on Instagram, which had about 2.3 million followers. And so by the time I left December 2017, we had 21 accounts across three different platforms, totaling up to about 11 million followers. So we were pitching Warner Music, Gatorade, Q4 Sports, Curve Fragrances, telling them, if you want to reach the 18 to 24 year old urban demographic that is interested in basketball, this is the account that you want to promote it through. Don't spend your money on TV ads because that demographic does not watch TV as much as finding highlights on their phone and, you know, sharing memes and sharing viral content on their phone. So I came up with the idea for TrueFan really through that. One of our advisors was a guy named Mark Sablo, who at the time was managing Chris Paul and Dwayne Wade's social media. And he asked us point blank, like, do you have a tool that Chris could use to find his most engaged fans in Houston? Because at the time he was going from the Clippers to the Rockets. Mm -hmm. And I didn't at the time, I kind of thought about the idea over the next three weeks. I thought it'd be cool. Like what if we built a simple platform where any brand, any celebrity, any influencer, any person for that matter, could go on and just find their top 50 fans on Twitter or Instagram. And so that was the initial iteration of the product. Obviously now we've become a wider solution. So we acquired a company called SocialRank in November, 2019. We became kind of this full service solution, helping brands market basically using data. So going through and, and figuring out who are your most valuable followers, your most engaged followers, how do I reach those people? What are they saying? It has all of this information in a dashboard for you to be able to filter and go through. So that's our biggest thing right now is figuring out kind of what's next. And I'm very excited because we are actually currently doing a fundraise. We're acquiring our second company, which is based out of Kelowna, BC. And we're going to start making a push towards first party data now. So not just being a third party segmentation platform that helps you sort your data, but actually helping you generate proper first party data on your social media followers. Interesting. How would you do that? Yeah, so the, the company we're acquiring is really good with giveaways. So okay. they essentially allow you to run automated giveaways. So if you want, you know, like maybe you have 2 million followers on Instagram, but you don't have their email addresses or their phone numbers or their mailing address, and you want that information, you can set up a giveaway, giving up a really cool reward and get all of your followers to get onto this platform where they're able to go through and sign up for your newsletter, download your app, follow you really on Really good idea to earn additional entries into the giveaway and win this broader giveaway. But in the process of doing the giveaway, you're obviously getting tangible first party data from them that you can then leverage in other ways. I really like that. Cool. Um, I want to ask just a little bit about TrueFan in the beginning stages, like, Mm -hmm. because you and Onyx started it together, your business partner, right? Yeah, I mean, it was it was me initially December 2017, then Ana came on January of 2018, and then Scott came on like March of 2018. So I don't really see it as like, 
you know, me, I say more just like the founding team was really me, Scott, Onik, and Trevor. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and how did you, uh, like, I'm going to talk a little bit about leadership here and building that team. What were the characteristics that you were looking for in that starting team that yeah. was like, yeah, these guys are the guys let's go for it. I think two things. One is just vision. Like they, they are very aligned with where we're trying to go. Like they see the world that I saw. And initially the world I saw is every celebrity, every brand reaching out to their community first, as opposed to reaching out to random influencers to get them to promote their content. Like let, let's go after our own brand advocates, people that actually know our product, that actually buy our product, that might be semi-influential in their local city. Um, and obviously now the vision has changed, but I wanted to find people initially that bought into that vision uh, entirely. And then the second is I wanted to find people that I know were independent, right? Like someone like Scott, for example, has had to manage various things throughout the last two and a half years. But it's been pretty cool to see him go from like running our sales department to now actually managing our customer success and retention department and, and kind of just seeing how versatile he is, but how he takes ownership with whatever it is he does. So I was looking for people like that with that early team, people that I know could be department heads that could really run a whole department, but also be very adaptive and versatile. I love that. That's yeah. good. Um, and in order to attract these types of people, you have to be a good leader yourself. And mm -hmm. obviously at a young age that may, you know, be difficult to acquire, but have you ever had any mentors or anybody that you've kind of reached out to for advice? Cause yeah. you know, you're, you're super young and people always come to you about this. And this is the last time I'm going to say that you're young. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but how have you overcome that bias maybe first? And then what yeah. makes a good leader in your opinion? Well, I haven't overcome it entirely in full context. Like there's a lot of things I still need to learn about leadership. Like I've had some pretty um, great experiences with leadership over the last two and a half years. And I've also had some very bad experiences with dealing with employees and not doing a very good job on that. So I think there's a lot to still learn. I definitely have a bunch of mentors I talk to on a daily basis. Like some of my closest friends, for example, like Saad from Bonsai or Alan Gannett, who's very big on LinkedIn as well and ran a big company called TrackMaven. Like these are the people I call on a daily basis just to say, I'm having this issue right now with an employee or I'm having this issue with you know COVID. <laughs> Explaining to people like what's going on and the fact that we're, we're keeping them safe, we're keeping them secure, but there might be some budget cuts in the future if things do decide to go south. How do I express that in a confident way? Stuff like that is what I really volley to some of my close friends and mentors. But again, a lot of it is also just trial and error. Like I do believe that the leader I was two and a half years ago is very different to the leader I am now. I prioritize um, a lot more kind of independence, if you will. Like I, I trust people to do their job more than I did two and a half years ago. I think two years ago when we hired our first people, I was always like, um, I'll give them a task, but like, I'm going to micromanage them. Like I'm going to ask them every two days if they did it. Cause I feel like I would be able to do it in a day. So they should be able to do it in two days. And it's not how it works, right? Everyone works at their own speed. And more importantly, if I'm hiring someone to do their job. I should probably just let them do their job. And then yeah. if they don't do their job, or if they don't do it well, that's a different conversation, but at least I'm putting that trust in them right away. And, and that's, that's easier said than done though, right? Oh, hundred percent. Because again, like, you know, you've been with this idea for longer than they have. So you just automatically feel like you know how to run the idea better than they do. But that yeah. isn't always the case, right? Like some of our new employees have changed the way we think about our business. The idea that we're at now isn't because I just randomly started changing directions because the team, the customers all decided to influence the way that we operated our business. All right. Well, uh, one more question on TrueFan before we move on, switch topics a little bit. Um, it is extremely difficult to raise money in Toronto or at least, or at <laughs> least relative, or at least relative to other countries for sure. And you've done pretty well in raising money for TrueFan, a couple mm -hmm. rounds over a million bucks. And it's all public information that I just researched online. Um, <laughs> do you have any advice for people, young aspiring entrepreneurs about raising money, how to go about doing it? And why do you think it's so difficult in Canada to raise money compared to other countries? So it's interesting because I, I actually don't think it's okay, like, okay. Compared to the United States, obviously it's difficult, right? I think I was looking at July, for example, and in deals that were valued at over 10 million in investments, California alone had made 39 and hmm. Canada as a country had made eight, right? California as a state had made about three times or four times, sorry, as many bets above a 10 million mark than Canada as a country did. So I understand comparing Canada and the US is obviously a different reasons to population. The amount of wealth is obviously so different in both countries. Um, 
But I do think that in Canada, it's not as hard as people make it seem. And the reason why is, yes, we play in a smaller pond, but that also does mean that there's less people doing what you would rather find people do in the United States. Like if I started a tech startup in the US, in California, I am likely to find more people there that are competing for VC money than I am here in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> Fair. So I think that's a benefit of being up here is, you play in a smaller pond, but if you do build a good product, then you're more likely to attract attention well, and you're more likely to get in touch with VCs, right? I find like the top angel investors here in Canada, Michelle Romanov, Andrew DeCesar, Ryan Holmes, Manny Pata, all these great people, Bruce Croxon, they're all so much more approachable, I feel, than US investors that have reached that level of fame or that level of success. And yeah, it's a smaller, it's a, it's right? a smaller knit in here in Toronto. Like everyone kind of knows and, each other and people are more humble. I feel, I, I, I really mm -hmm. do back that. I think Canadians are more humble just in general with success. So, because we're always compared to our U S counterparts and we always feel like we still have something to prove and something to do. Right. That's mm -hmm. why you see Michelle Romanov with Clearbank trying to put it on the map and because like there's a mission behind this of putting Canada on the map too. So okay. I, I think that in my opinion, I don't think it's as hard. I just think my tips are just being prepared. You know, like initially when we raised our first round of 550,000, we raised from 18 angel investors. We didn't go to a VC. We went to 18 high net worth people and asked them to put checks between 10,000 and $25,000 in. Wow. And for a high net, for high net worth individual, that isn't a very big bet for them to make. If you also de-risk the investment by having a great deck built out, having a good MVP, having some signed pilots, having some level of projections built out that's reasonable. That's the type of stuff that really can put you ahead of anyone else that has an idea but doesn't have anything built out in the form of a product or customer testimonials and is going after a big VC that isn't going to invest in them in the first place. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of uh, like rookie entrepreneurs too. They have an idea and yep. they're looking just for a million bucks, right? right? They haven't done the work necessary in order to kind of earn that. So. No. No, not at all. And for me, like, again, I do think we were actually premature when we raised, we raised pre-product. So I do think we got lucky, but I also know that the, the people that we raised from, those relationships were things that I was building for the last two years. Then first and second year of university, I did an interview series on LinkedIn where I interviewed high net worth people. And those people, a lot of which came into the first round. So I cultivated these relationships over two years. It wasn't like I just started DMing people in one month and then got them to put $550,000 together. It was a matter of time and effort that came with building a relationship, following up with people, making sure they felt valued, and then going back to them when I was raising money and giving them a convincing pitch over what I did to get to this point. Yeah, perseverance right there and some grit and a little bit of patience too, right? So yeah. I like that. Yeah. On your website, uh, it says, I'm a counterpuncher in a world where everyone wants to be the aggressor. What does that mean exactly? I think it's just a simple way of saying I like going against the grain. Like, I love going against the grain when it comes to, um, you know, debate, for example. Like, I had a lisp. I still have a lisp. I have a speech impediment. I have a hard time saying S's and R's. And when I joined debate, I remember my second competition, a judge was like, Swish, you are a very smart person. I cannot wait until you get your retainer taken out. Oh, shit. Ouch, 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 wrecked, you know? So <laughs> I, that was, a, but that was a, the usual feedback, like people just being like, oh, like you're really smart, but I can't really understand you. And like, um, that was a big thing that I had to get over, right? To join the national team and then to represent Canada twice. I'm, I'm very proud about it because yeah, I that's amazing. thought that, you know, like I'm not the most stylistic person when it comes to speaking, but I guess, you know, your thoughts and what you think is more important than how you convey it. Um, I think the second thing is obviously with dropping out of school, that was definitely kind of going against the culture, especially among my friends, among my friends who were debaters, among my culture, as like, you know, coming from an Indian family, that was very against the grain. And then even starting a business, right, and, and running a business like this through COVID, for example, like there's just stuff that I feel like I do, which goes against the grain. And that's why I say, you know, in a world where everyone is trying to kind of be an aggressor and push out this kind of one route to success, I try to be a counterpuncher and show them that there's actually two ways. Nice. I like that. Did you, did you come up with that yourself or do you read it somewhere? I read when it, I read it, I was like, that's pretty unique. No, I, I read the, the counterpuncher is just an idea, just a boxing reference. It's like very similar to round 13 capital. Like mm -hmm, I, I got mm -hmm. a lot of the boxing references through them, but um, in a world where everyone wants to be an aggressor, I remember Gary Vaynerchuk talking about that in, in my first year in a video in a keynote that he gave, he was like, everyone wants to be the aggressor. Everyone's trying to push, their message out without ever having a strategy over what they're doing. 
So I decided to kind of take those two trains of thought and, and kind of put them together into one. All right. Um, so now you're developing, you've been CEO of TrueFan for how many years now? Two and a half. Yeah, two two and, and a half years. Yeah. How do you manage your time as a CEO? Yeah. Like what is a typical day? What does a week look like? You don't have to go into sure. too much detail, but how yeah. has that kind of evolved over the last two and a half years? And totally. what, like what makes, how do you prioritize your time on the right things? Yeah, I mean, look, in the first year and a half, I'd say that my my balance was very all over the place. Like I was focused on TrueFan for sure, but I was also focused on like building up my speaking career, growing my following on social media, um, advising and investing companies, doing a podcast, you know, like just doing a number of different things, writing a book, which thankfully I've done now, but like that took two years to write. Like all of that stuff kind of bogged me down. And so I think my focus just wasn't there, especially in, you know, 2019, I don't feel like my focus was there until October of 2019. And that was around the time we acquired Social Rank when things really started to like move, right? And we obviously started to go from like, okay, we're like a, a decent player in the audience analytics space to like, we are the player in the audience analytics space, um, just based on like brand notoriety and, and brand entity. Um, I think this year I've been more focused than ever before, like especially throughout COVID, I've, we've been moving so quickly that I haven't really had time for anything else. So you know, the podcast, social media content, speaking, the book side, everything is kind of put aside. If I'll do it, you know, once in a while, I, I love kind of speaking, obviously, it's one of the things I'm passionate about. So if I'm able to make time for it, I will. But 95% of my week is true fan. So it means internal meetings in the morning, external meetings in the afternoon, and then in the evening, having a cup of wine or, you know, taking out a beer and just shooting, you know, my, my shot with emails right now, right? We're fundraising. So a lot of my emails are cold emails, reaching back out to existing investors and kind of just putting ourselves out there once again. I want to, I want to touch upon that because obviously yep. you have, it's a common thing. Like there's so many things to do. Yep. How do you pick and focus in, like you said, on like the right things that really move the needle forward the most, especially yep. as a leader, you're the, one of the main drivers of the company, right? Yeah. But you do have a lot of a presence outside of the company. Like you said, the book, your LinkedIn meetups, which was, I know, a long a while or more a while ago, Instagram yep. accounts, your investing yep. that you do, public yep. speaking. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that between building your own personal brand, which I notice a lot of young entrepreneurs, especially really focus on their personal brand, whether it's, yeah. you know, fake it till you make it or whatever yeah. the case is, you know, yep. um, or just a flex, you know, for the, for the clients. Yeah. Totally. But how do you balance that and make sure that you're not spending too much time on that yep. and also being able to build the company as well? So what I've noticed and the reason why I focus so much of my time on TrueFan is two reasons. One is obviously now there's people in the company, immigrants that have come to Canada a year or two years ago, families that are very dependent on us doing a good job, right? We obviously, they're going to be doing a good job too, but at the top line management level, I feel like an onus and a responsibility to make sure that they're covered, that they're taken care of. And one of the things I am very proud about is throughout COVID, we haven't had to lay off a single person on TrueFan's team, right? Wow. And, and I'm very clear that I will take a salary cut. I will take a pay cut. Onik will take a pay cut. Our executive team will take a pay cut if need be, if we ever get to that point where we are starting to kind of feel the ramifications of COVID in a negative way. The second thing though is I, I, I realize that TrueFan is actually the nucleus for everything else in my life. So the tech podcast that I do only becomes better when people see me as a host that's credible in building a tech company. Speaking becomes far more interesting when I'm able to talk about incredible experiences that I've had building a company like TrueFan. Writing a book on youth entrepreneurship is very important and it gets even better as I start to, again, build experiences building TrueFan. My social media presence, talking on LinkedIn and Instagram, I don't, I don't post photos of Lambos or anything. I share photos either of, of memes on my stories, basketball content, personal photos, or just on LinkedIn, especially conversations around mental health and entrepreneurship. That's my brand. All of that stuff becomes far better when TrueFan does better. So I view it as if TrueFan does better, every other aspect of my life will become better as well. The types of events that I'm invited out to speak at become better. You know, the amount of attention my book or podcast that I get will, will grow, right? So that's the way I view it is kind of true fans and nucleus. If I do a good job there, then everything else will take care of itself. And I think the final thing is on speaking and on the book side, I obviously have other people managing that for me. So Speaker Spotlight manages all my appearances for speaking. And then Kogan Page will manage the book, right? They're the publisher out in the UK. 
they're going to now take it from the written manuscript to editing it, building out the covers, the design, everything like that, and launching it. So there's obviously stuff that I've taken off my plate and given to other people. Delegation is key. I like that. Does it work the other way around too? Like if you're, if your personal brand and all the PR and stuff that you're doing is doing well, then so will your company. Totally. I mean, yeah, like I, I, I got to say initially, a lot of our early customers came from people just knowing me off LinkedIn. Right. But, but now again, we're playing in a different league. Like no one gives a shit who Swishka Swami is. <laughs> like they just, they want to see the product and they want to see whether or not it's going to be beneficial to them or not. So again, like the personal branding side helps, but I, I also feel like I've done a fairly good job recently about it. So I don't feel like an urgent need to like go and improve it. Like if I really wanted to commit time to it, I could, but I just like, it's like opportunity cost. And I'd rather yeah. spend time on my business because I find that to be just more stimulating creatively and just like it's a new challenge every single day as opposed to waking up and what am I going to post and how am I going to engage with people? It's like, I can do that on the side, but I don't need to make it my full-time career. I understand that. I understand. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk more about mental health because <laughs> it's something that I noticed you've been speaking more about. And even as an entrepreneur myself and someone that works with either advisory or investing in other entrepreneurs, yeah, it's a lonely road. It is. And and maybe there's not enough, there's been more, but maybe there's not enough conversation around like entrepreneurship, mental health, mm-hmm. um, or business owner or founder mental health, yep. and there needs to be, but even just mental health in general. Yeah, I think there is enough conversation happening around mental health and entrepreneurship. I think the problem is it's still not as sexy to talk about that as opposed to talking about private jets, bottle service, the Lambos, <laughs> which gets far more attention to aspire to <laughs> right? That is the yeah. issue, I feel. It's the content it just is, is being kind of mellowed out because of all this flashy, shiny things that aspiring entrepreneurs want. So I, I, I'm so passionate about it because... I have a co-founder now too, right? And, and my co-founder lives with me. Onik right now is obviously in Vancouver because of COVID and just taking care of his family there. But even when I had Onik here, there were times when both of us felt lonely. And the reason you feel lonely in entrepreneurship isn't necessarily because you don't have people around you. It's because a lot of what you are going through, you can't explain it to other people. A lot of people can't relate to the struggles that an entrepreneur faces. Right. And especially depending on the business, the struggles you're facing are going to differ. Right. Saad from Bonsai is going to have a different struggle every week than I might have because my business is in a totally different industry than his. So it's hard. It's hard for me to talk to my mom. It's hard for me to talk to my brother, who's a lawyer, about these problems, because for them, it's a structural problem. It's not an emotional problem because they don't have a vested interest in the baby. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a vested interest in me through the baby, I guess. But um, they don't actually have an interest in the baby. And so it's, it becomes very difficult to, you know, maintain your relationships and to put all of those doubts and worries and anxieties in your head and, and kind of have them bottle up over time and not being able to talk about them. And that's why one thing I do like about Onik as a co-founder is we do try to sync up every day. And we do try to share our doubts and our worries and our vulnerabilities before they compound and become something bigger. But it's, again, easier said than done. It took us two and a half years to get there to a point where we truly trust each other to talk about these things very openly. Yeah, definitely. But you hit, man, you hit it right on the head there. I couldn't relate more than what you just said in the last 30 seconds there. Um, If you don't mind sharing a, if you don't mind sharing a time where something kept you up at night and, uh, and how did you get over that? (laughs) Like literally right now, like, you know, we're raising a bigger round. We're raising about 3 million USD. And I think we have great metrics through COVID. I think we have a solid product. I think the acquisition we're making is only going to improve our team and our product. But there's obviously doubts in my head, right? Like, what if we're not able to raise the money by December 1st, right? Like, what what is going to happen in the new year? Are we going to be able to move as fast as we can on a unified product? Are we going to have to lay people off eventually if our burn becomes too high because we're acquiring a team of seven people from Kelowna, BC, right? So th- there are doubts like that that come into play as well. Um, even in the past, though, they've been doubts through COVID, right? Like, I have had to think of what are the worst case scenarios because I've had to build a contingency plan on what costs we're going to cut, who potentially we might need to cut if it gets really, really, really bad. Um, And that is scary. And you go to bed, obviously, hoping that the next morning you wake up, the world doesn't flip upside down again. And it gets even worse. And I have to wake up to a bunch of people calling me and saying, what are we going to do? That is a scary nightmare that I I do have occasionally. 
Um, how do you now, get, how do you, uh, how do you deal with that? I, in the last kind of five months, I've told my team two things. Do not apologize for over communicating and do not apologize for over preparing. If it needs to happen, do it right. Like if you need to go through and prepare for what if the second wave happens, prepare for that within your department, give me what the estimates are, give me what types of people we're gonna have to cut, give me what costs we're gonna cut, give me the most lean budget you can, assuming the world literally flips upside down again in September, October, November. So over-preparing is, in my opinion, the number one way to kind of cast any doubts in your head. And I have like 4,000 notes, I think, too, so I over-prepare about everything. Conversations I might need to have at some point, um, things that I should probably think about in December or in the new year when we go into the new year, conversations that I want to have with certain employees, I write this stuff down. So it's constantly out there and I don't need to keep putting it in my head and worry about not forgetting it. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, uh, it's something, it's so relatable, right? Like a lot yep. of founders and entrepreneurs, they don't know who to talk to about this kind of stuff. Because yep. it's, my mom is a big like mentor of mine, always has been, same as my dad. But there was a time around like 24, 25, where I just, even 22, like where I just couldn't go to her with my problems anymore because yep. she wouldn't understand, right? Yep. But I, I find I find solace in like other mentors who are probably like older than me. Yeah. Or, entrepreneurs that have kind of been through it in a way you know yep. times are probably different when they're our age but and even even them i feel like even having older mentors is great obviously for me we were in a social media company so there's very few older mentors we can really talk yeah. to that really get it that are plugged into this world but at the same time i also feel like just having mentors like sometimes they oversimplify your issues too right like i I've had mentors where I go in with a really deep problem and they've just given me a simple solution. I'm like, it's not that simple. Like, I know mm -hmm. you want to help yeah. me, but it also goes back to kind of the, this is a big relationship advice too, honestly, that I learned over time of having kind of failed relationships. But uh, sometimes people just want to vent. They just want to share and they don't want advice. And the mm. problem is you can't do that also as an entrepreneur. Like when you vent about like, Oh my God, like, I'm going to have a really difficult conversation with an employee coming up. It's like to most average people, they're like, yeah, so what? Like, okay, right. just have it. What's the problem? We just have the conversation. They don't get the backstory. They don't get like how we can, you know, pretty much impact the entire culture of the team. It could maybe even make other employees pissed off the ramifications there, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's hard to talk about these issues, let alone get good solutions back. Ah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really happy that you're speaking more about this on your platforms and it's more mm -hmm. of a driving force for your messaging and communication because mm -hmm. it, I can, I'm behind you a hundred percent on making this more of a topic of discussion. Yeah. Um, you have any advice for anybody going through some kind of, uh, going through that, like over-preparing for sure, but anything to kind of cope with that kind of stuff? I mean, also just one is, you know, seek therapy too. Like I, I find uh, therapy has been very helpful for me personally. I've had to deal with it more on the, on the family side. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't think there's a shame in going to a therapist. I think it's like anything, a personal trainer for your mind, you know, a personal trainer for your mind. And if anything, in my opinion, going to a therapist is a sign of strength because it means that you are comfortable enough to acknowledge that you are going through a tough time and you are brave enough to face the music and hear what needs to change in your life to get out of this period. So I think going to a therapist can be great, especially now virtually it can be done, right? So, you know, try a consultation. A lot of places offer free consultation. It might be a great way to just get your mind off something and talk to someone that's objective, that has no relation to your life whatsoever, but can just tell you what's right, what's wrong to them. Um, and then the second thing I think is also not to over sweat issues. Like I've noticed that with entrepreneurship, the biggest issues I had last month now look so menial. Like, like, it's just a constant roller coaster, right? Where like one night you're feeling like the king of the world and then like literally eight hours goes by and you're like, holy God, I am sinking and drowning in work. So just, you know, go with the ride, like go with the ride and note that if you trust your team, if you trust the people you put around you, if you trust your product and your vision, things will likely work out. And if it doesn't work out, you're still going to come away with an unbelievable story and some great lessons to go and figure out something else. So we're going to switch gears a little bit again and talk more about social media and digital marketing. If you haven't watched The Social Dilemma, you've got to go watch that. <laughs> I, you haven't, know. I haven't. Mark, and, you haven't yet, no? I have, no, I haven't. Oh, you have, you have, yeah. Mark and I Mark and I have both watched and yeah, he, we're all in digital marketing here. So we kind of like got the idea, but 
the way that they describe it is just mind blowing, you know, yep. and a little bit of irony or like satire, but like it was really funny. So yep. let's talk a little bit about that. So I've heard you before you and Onik criticize PPC, like paid pay-per-click ads and like Facebook and Instagram and Google. Can yep. you elaborate a little bit on that and like yeah. your prediction <laughs> for the future when it comes to online ads? Sure. I mean, I, uh, look, I, I think paid ads right now is still effective. I'm not saying it's not effective, but I do think over time, third-party advertising is going to decline. It's actually why we're planning to even make a push in a first-party data because, you know, you take a look at what's happening in the world. Um, on, a, on a very top-line level, platforms like TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook are under incredible scrutiny, even to the point of potentially being shut down. Um, you have platforms like Firefox, Safari, and Chrome that are taking away third-party cookies, which is about $19 billion in value that's going to be lost in third-party data markets at the end of 2022. Mm. And then in ads specifically, you have issues right now of ad blockers that are rising, especially among the younger demographic of millennials and Gen Z that have ad block on and are skipping ads and not want to, wanting to watch them. You have issues of brands not being able to control where ads are being placed. JP Morgan, Verizon had their ads last year being put on top of racist YouTube content, but they had no control over that. All they had was a PR crisis the next morning that they had to handle and they couldn't prevent it whatsoever because those ads were out of their control. You also have issues, you have issues of ad fraud, right? Click farms and domain laundering, which is going to lead to about $150 million in ad fraud by the end of this year alone. You're also having issues of ad attribution where brands really can't single, like they can't pinpoint whether an ad is the reason for your sales going up, right? Like an ad can help obviously in terms of helping you be top of mind, but it's very hard to calculate true attribution because the people normally that are served with ads already have buying intent. So like if I already searched up Foot Locker or if I already searched up the new Puma Dream Shaker shoes and I then see a Puma shoe as an ad, like it's That's a waste of money. money. My, yeah. In my opinion, on a certain degree, it could be a waste of money because you're just targeting people that already have buying intent versus targeting the people that you need to target, which are people that aren't even thinking about Puma or Foot Locker right now. But those are the people that you want to be able to get them to start thinking about it, to start searching it up, et cetera, et cetera. So, so what's the solution that well, those are all really good points, by the way, yeah. like I've yeah. read about those, but the way you describe them, excellent. Mm -hmm. What's the solution though? Because isn't the same thing for out of home ads, like billboards or like magazine yep. ads, like I already bought a Nike shoe, but I'm driving by yep. uh, the billboard over here and it's hitting me up. Right. Isn't that yep. the kind of the same thing? What's the solution to that? The solution is securing yourself by having an omni-channel approach. It's by not just relying on ads. It's being able to also own your own audience. So the problem right now that I have is the way that most brands go about targeting their audience is by paying Instagram to target their audience versus actually owning their audience in the first place. So having email addresses, phone numbers, mailing addresses on the people that follow you on social media. Hmm. So that's exactly why I think first party data is so important is because imagine TikTok decides to shut down tomorrow, you lose your 2 million followers, you don't have information on them to be able to target them in other ways. But now if you have an omni-channel approach of, okay, I'll DM some people on Instagram, I'll still do ads, but I have X, Y, Z, other methods, push notifications, SMS, direct mail, other ways to reach my end consumer, that puts you in a much better situation. It gives you power as opposed to the platforms like Instagram and Facebook. Interesting. I like that. Okay, cool. Um, we're running, we're almost running out of time here. So I'm going to skip through some of these questions. Could talk to you forever, man. Great <laughs> insight. Here. Great. No, I appreciate yeah. it. As you know, I'm a, uh, or maybe you do, maybe you don't. We have a channel that's mainly on personal finance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of how we started it. Personal finance. It's evolved into this thing now that I can't control where it's going, but I like to bring it back a little bit every single time to personal finance. I've been a banker or a financial planner for over 10 years now. Mm -hmm. It's what I do. Um, and I work a lot with entrepreneurs right. and it could be difficult being an entrepreneur and uh, with your personal finances and whatnot. Right. So real quick, uh, how has being an entrepreneur affected your own financial, like personal finance? You don't have to tell us like numbers and stuff like that, yeah. but maybe for yeah. other people getting out there that see the Lamborghinis and the, and all that kind of stuff, how yeah. does it differ and how is be the path of becoming an entrepreneur affected your personal finances? Totally. I mean, two things. I think one is obviously early on, we were staying very lean. So I wasn't paying myself very much um, in the early days with TrueFan. And um, 
that forced me to really change habits, right? It forced me to cook a little bit more <laughs> and not Uber Eats every day. It taught me to walk and bike as opposed to Ubering. It taught me to maybe not go out every weekend and to save money, right? And because the big thing I wanted to do, obviously, is prove to my mom and my dad that I could be independent, right? That's the reason they allowed me to drop out of school is because they were like, we're going to cut you off now. So good luck. And <laughs> thankfully, it worked out. And, and I'm now able to stay independent. And they're happy with that. But um, that was a big motive of mine in the early days of TrueFan. I think the second thing, which is a little bit cooler, is I've gotten to take a look at the inner workings of uh, how you know corporate taxes work and how people invest through their companies and how people go about structuring their financial life. You know, for me, um, initially when I was speaking, for example, or when I was doing brand deals on Instagram or LinkedIn, I was just getting the payment right into my personal account. Right. You know, I was incurring terrible taxes on that. And now I have, you know, like a year and a half ago, two years ago, I set up a corporate account, right? And all my speaking fees and all of the brand deals that I do and the book royalties I get or anything like that is going to be put into this corporate account where I'm very happy to pay the 13, 14% tax as opposed to whatever the 40, 50% tax they have it up to now. Yeah. So I think that's very important to know too. Just like, where do you learn how to do this kind of stuff? Yourself? Pardon me? Where did you learn how to do this kind of stuff? Yeah, just by learning it through TrueFank, right? Like like the process of us doing our taxes, which is something we had to do initially like by ourselves, not through an accountant. Thankfully, now we have an accountant, so we're able to just, you know, here are the documents, do it, thank you. <laughs> but early days, right? Like, you know, Trevor and me had to grind through numbers, figuring out, all right, do we have every all the receipts properly built out? Do we have all these invoices built out? These statements are probably made. Okay, cool, we submitted them. Did the claim get approved? Blah, blah, blah. Like all of this stuff taught us a lot about Okay, you know, if TrueFan was an individual versus if TrueFan was a corporation, what's the difference here in terms of how mm -hmm. taxes work and how our how how we're going about kind of redistributing our wealth? So that was really cool to see, and I took a lot of those lessons and then incorporated into my personal life. Especially so a little little trial and error and learning the hard way. Exactly, very much learning the hard way, man. Like, Why do you think this kind of stuff isn't taught in school? You know, I, there's, a, there's a controversial viewpoint, which is maybe the government doesn't want to teach you this type of stuff because they do obviously make a lot of their money through taxes. Um, and I think there's also just a second thing, which is like, there's, it's hard. It's really tough to understand stuff like this without, you know, like I had to understand this stuff because I had to go through and like file taxes and then go on the government page and like talk to lawyers, even like pro bono, like my, my brother's lawyer said like he connected me to a few of his friends that do corporate law and like asked them a like, certain number of questions around claims and how you submit them. Like it's, it's really tough to take all of that information and put it into a high school course. Right. But I do agree with you. I think we can start off at a very simple level, which is just how do you manage your finances? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, in a world where we have apps like mint or we, you know, we have like these small little savings apps that you can use. I don't understand why high school teachers don't say, okay, guys, we're going to do a test. You're going to go home. You're going to put 50 bucks into an account and we're going to see who saves the most money by the end of the month. Like, you know, that type of stuff I think should absolutely be taught. And I think it's taught in certain aspects, but it's not taught entirely. And again, maybe it goes back to the reason that maybe the government doesn't want to teach us this stuff initially. I hear you. It's literally yeah. my whole motivation as to why I do this, uh, this podcast, but you've taught us a lot. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll wrap up here. So uh, before the last question, where can people get in touch with you online? Yeah, LinkedIn, um, Swish Kiswami, S-W-I-S-H. I'm hopefully the only Swish in your network. Um, and then Instagram, at GoSwish, G-O-S-W-I-S-H. And feel free to DM me, you know, say, hey, I listen to this podcast and um, I'm very approachable. So I love reaching out to people. Beauty. Um, okay, so last question I'll ask you here. Um, I ask this to every single guest on the podcast. Same question every time to end off. We live in a world where uh, people take a lot of things for granted, like this phone that I'm using. I have no clue how it works, but it works. And the lights here, I honestly don't know how electrical works, but it works, <laughs> right? Yeah. And people, whenever I interview them, they have unique viewpoints or perspectives on things that most other people don't even think about, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if there was one thing that you know is true, that you wish everybody else knew, what would that be? So I have an answer for business and I have an answer just on, on the personal side. Give us both. Uh, on the business side, the idea that you start off with is not important. The idea that you start off with is not important. Um, I genuinely do believe that. I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs spend way too much time planning out an idea. And the problem is, A, you're missing a potential window of opportunity. B, you're going to jinx yourself out of that idea if you try to find way too many holes in it early on. 
And three, that idea isn't even a matter because a year, two, three, four years from now, you're actually going to iterate that idea and make it something totally different. And we are exhibit A of that, right? We started off in a simple fan engagement platform. Can I find my top 50 fans on Instagram and Twitter? To now where we're talking about these big concepts like first party data and third party segmentation. And that's something I never would have dreamt of. But again, we went with the flow and started to learn lessons from investors, clients, team members, and build out a unified vision later on. So the, the first idea that you have, it doesn't matter, get started with building out a proof of concept and believing that hopefully that idea can grow into something a lot bigger. And the second thing on the personal end is, I, I, I genuinely do think that in a world where we glamorize networking so much, it's fantastic to have a very big network, but I equally value having a tight knit network as well. So. I believe that if I had to choose between knowing a thousand people eh, kind of well or knowing five people incredibly well as an entrepreneur, I would pick the latter. I would pick knowing five people really well that would pick up a call at 2 a.m. that would see me on short notice. That would actually check in with me and care about how I was doing because it is a rigorous process, right? It's a lonely process and you need people to care about you and you want those people to care about you because there are going to be times where you're feeling extremely lonely and low and you want to be able to have people that you can bounce ideas off. So, you know, network your ass off, but don't try to like, you know, just network for the sake of meeting people and like not, you know, bringing them into your lives. Um, try as much as possible to have a tight knit community around you of five, six, seven people that you just know you can count upon. I agree. Very good. Thanks for sharing that. Relationships are important and being able to adapt your idea is even more important, especially as an entrepreneur too. Mm -hmm. So, all right, that uh, actually comes to the end and we did it. Mark always tries to keep me on time. Mark, how did I do? Perfect at 3 p.m. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm one minute past 3 p.m. on this fine that Toronto more, I think that's fall. more on me than it is on you, but no, sure. No, you did a great job, brother. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We'll be in touch soon, Swish. Absolutely. Hopefully we could play basketball sometime very shortly Hopefully. once all this is over. Absolutely. For everybody out there, thank you for listening who got this far. Until next time, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Wise Investor. Until next time. This is what they did not teach you in school. We hope to see you soon.